Well, good afternoon. Welcome to, yeah, eventually. Your American heritage, baby. <laughs> My name is Ed Bondarenka, and I am. Not your normal fluffy insurrectionist. And producing the show is the guy that answers the phones, warns me commercials are coming, puts the guests online, and finds answers to questions we ask. He warns me when the commercials are coming again, and that's Derek Stone, the man who puts the show on the road. Derek hosts Stone Cold Sports Truth, which is Sundays at noon 30, right after my friend Sean Todd hosts The Intersection at noon. You know, The Intersection, it's of course... Not your normal fluffy Christian show. So you should listen to both shows before Operation Freedom comes on with Dave Janda, too, and listen to the whole Saturday lineup of Abolitionist Roundtable at 9 a.m., Trigger Talk at 11, and Moment of Clarity that I co-host right before this show, and to find a calming influence after all of that, stay tuned to Speaking of Art with Ed Hoffman. Now, Your American Heritage is on Spotify, Apple, Google Music Podcasts, and you can and should subscribe to one of those and boost the signal. Be a Paul Revere. Get the word out. Do your part. I'm doing mine. It's day 1,168 of the coup, the taking of the American government by enemies, both foreign and domestic. There's a war going on for control of America and you, and it's spiritual warfare. It's a struggle to enslave mankind. And it's been going on since before man arrived on this planet. And how do we fight back? Well, we get organized, preferably in a good church. We go to court. We educate our neighbors. We speak loudly enough about the outrages of this regime at the diner so that the people in the booths around us overhear us and agree or learn something. And we remark to the cashier about the high prices due to this regime since they came to power so that the people in line around us realize they're not alone when they think, what's going on? And the register operator will usually agree with you. So be brave. Be the frontline warrior. Become a precinct delegate. Join the school board. Support those that go to court and jail financially and prayerfully. Pray for the January 6th political prisoners and vote. We vote whether they cheat or not. And we help others to vote. And we arm ourselves, intellectually, of course, and we pray. They have a justice department. We have a God. Psalm 144 says, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. So please clasp those hands in your fingers and let's pray. Let's go to war. Father, please lead us and guide us as we seek to protect this nation. Please help us to restore it to a constitutional republic and remove the illegal overreach of those that would oppress us. Please help us protect our heritage and the rights that you have given us from these evil conspirators, thieves, traitors, and tyrants. And please bring these enemies of good and sound morals to a place of repentance. And if they will not repent, please remove them from our presence. Amen. Well, today's guest is Michael Waller, and I've got great news. He's actually here. So, Michael is the author of the recently released Big Intel. It's a, great, it's a great book. It's a good book. I've I've read the whole thing, and uh, I'm so impressed with it. And as a former intelligence operator, Michael Waller offers his unique insight on the infiltration of Marxism into the CIA and the FBI and shows how normal intelligence functions have been given over to political correctness and leftist propaganda. Now, Michael is also senior analyst for strategy at the Center for Security Policy, and he's president of Georgetown Research, which is a political risk and private intelligence company. Oh, welcome to the show, Mike. How hey, are you today? All right. It's great to be here. That's good. Glad to hear that. Okay. So Big Intel, as I was reading it, I was thinking, man, this really dovetails with something 
uh, a podcast that Bill Whittle did a little bit ago for the Daily Wire called The Cold War, What We Saw. And in it, he talks about the beginnings of the Cold War and how it came came about. And your book talks about pretty much that same historical period, uh, starting with the uh, Bolshevik Revolution in that period of time, and how intelligence services were developed to counter that to some degree, to a large degree. But then what went on as, as the historical period goes on, we end up in World War I and then in World War II, and we find ourselves in World War II without a national intelligence agency, except for uh, uh, the Navy intelligence and to some degree uh, the Army intelligence. So why don't you speak to that for a bit right there? Uh, flesh that out a little bit for us. How did we come to... So the predecessor of the CIA then is the uh, the OSS, but actually the FBI got started long before that. So why don't you talk about how the FBI got started? Well, we never had a central uh, law enforcement or, or intelligence service for our country because it was always a states-based, you know, federation of, of uh, you know, st- self-governing states pretty much. And then that changed in the early 20th century when with the uh, progressive era coming in and the supposed need to have, you know, to federalize everything. This was, this was early on. So 1908, the, the uh, Justice Department set up a, what they called a Bureau of Investigation which was for special agents, meaning agents of the government who had very special limited authority to act nationwide to to enforce federal laws and to investigate crimes and, and other things. At this period of time, there was a lot of communist and anarchist extremism and violence and terrorism going on, mainly from immigrants pouring in from Europe. So you had President William McKinley was assassinated by an anarchist. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt, his vice president later, uh, he ran for president, ran again in 1912 uh, as a third party candidate. And he was shot in the chest while starting to make a speech. So all of this terrible stuff was happening. They were. Oh, and he made the speech, by the way, despite the chest. He went and got up and apologized and said, sorry, I, I've been I've been shot, but I must make my speech. So was, <laughs> then he you don't but actually there was like something. That. It wasn't a Bible that stopped the bullet, but there was something that he was carrying in his in his pocket that stopped it. Right. Yeah. He had a steel eyeglass cases and then he had a 50 page wad of paper in his pocket and that <laughs> slowed down the bullet. So it went into his chest muscle, but didn't penetrate his chest. And he, he got up and said, well, I've got to make this speech. So he did. What a man. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that period. And then you had World War One uh, followed and our involvement starting in, in 1917. And then uh, and then uh, these waves of immigration fleeing Europe. And it was a lot of communists and anarchists and, and radical socialists coming in from Europe. We didn't screen them. So the, the Justice Department had a small unit. Uh, and they had a guy who was in his early 20s, and they said, oh, we want you to run this unit. His name was John Edgar Hoover. He went by his middle name. And uh, and his job was to identify foreign subversives, round them up, and deport them back to Russia. Great job for a kid in his 20s. He that, So he didn't start out as a lawman, even though he had a law degree. He started out hunting subversives who wanted to overthrow our way of life, destroy not just our constitutional republic, but to destroy all of Western civilization and all the Greco-Roman, Hebraic, and Christian traditions that went with it. 
So how did that, this wasn't just random that these people came over here, right? There was, there was some, well, there was a, a movement, there was Marxism for sure, before there was a Soviet Union. But then after a while, after the Soviet Union was formed, that activity of sending people over here to disrupt our way of life became a little bit more structured, right? Yes, exactly. More organized and 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 pinpointed. So you had a lot of people just fleeing. They were fleeing monarchies for the most part in Europe, and they wanted to overthrow those monarchies. So the monarchies treated them very poorly. So we welcomed them with open arms to come and just be good Americans. But the thing is, they brought their subversive beliefs with them. They did not Americanize. Uh, you know, most of the immigrants did, but these organized minorities did not. When the Soviets took power in Moscow in late 1917, the communists took power. After they settled in, before they even consolidated power, they began regimenting these massive immigrant groups um, as communist parties to organize them as parties, discipline them as parties. You have a whole hierarchy and a whole horizontal organizational system in every single country that they possibly could. So the United States was a big target for them. This is where Hoover then got involved when he was now heading the Bureau of Investigation to track these networks and this new communist party and to warn Congress about it and warn the public and then get authority to break it up. Yeah, okay, so they actually, they were on, more on a mission now at this point. And that mission was basically to bring about mistrust in American institutions, right? To disrupt the American uh, culture to some degree, and our, our faith in our systems, in our in our uh, yeah, systems, the, the things that we had to protect us. They were there to disrupt life in America, right? And to, and to set us to set us against each other, children against parents, uh, husband against wife. Uh, reject religion, reject patriotism, reject all of these good things, to question everything, not to try to make things better, but to destroy it all. And this wasn't just through, from reading your book and, and from other sources, of course, this wasn't just from taking some immigrants and throwing them over here, but actually there was like the Frankfurt School that was set up and there was a um, philosophical uh, there were authors that were, there were, uh, what's the word supported and, uh, uh, supported financially. There were, uh, like think tanks, like, you know, the Frankfurt school that were opposed to capitalism, you know, pro communism. And they were set up in Europe, but then of all things, after they had been set up basically to attack Europe, they were driven out of Europe by the Nazis, right? And then yeah. ended up over here and welcomed. And actually, like, like, uh, oh, I'm thinking like uh, an infestation or that was that was swatted over here. All of a sudden, that it all flees to America and takes place here. Is is that right? Right. It was part of the you had you had refugees fleeing Germany, but these Frankfurt School people. To get back to the Frankfurt School, the the uh, the Soviets realized that they could not replicate a violent revolution in. Western Europe after World War One and after their own revolution, even in Germany, which was divided and fighting itself, there was no mood for a communist revolution in Germany, even among the communists. They so so they thought, well, what do we do to 
Soviets and, and the European communists were thinking, what do we do to wreck these countries so that we can have a communist takeover? So it was decided at a meeting in Moscow in 1922 to create an academic institution that would cater to the elites. So the intellectual elites, journalist elites, entertainment elites, business elites, um, uh, academic elites, and so forth, and to 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 attack the culture. So there, it's not the what the Marxism we know of the Communist Manifesto of 1848, where you you've got your toiling masses of laborers fighting the rich bourgeoisie. Because by the 1920s and 30s, the a lot of rich people were loved Marxist ideology, just like they do today. So, and they were funding a lot of it. So, so the idea was they set up a school in Frankfurt, Germany, and it was called the Frankfurt School. And so these were people who were actual Soviet agents under Soviet control, working with a lot of leftists and just sort of idiots and then losers because people who just sort of the way envisioned San Francisco today but it's really <laughs> berlin in the 1920s it was a really messed up place the people were messed up they were there they had the war trauma there was a huge drug problem there the sexual revolution going on and all this other things happening to reject pretty much depicted in the movie cabaret right yeah yes i mean and, and it's just human nature so let's rather than have just a, a violent revolution let's have a fun revolution while we're on drugs and having sex with everybody and 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 how can we make it cool and trendy and then you have these trust fund babies or these heirs and heiresses of huge industries who were, you know, didn't really have dads to guide them growing up because the dads were too busy going off becoming tycoons. So they inherit all this money that they don't know what to do with. And then they end up giving it away to extremists to wreck everything. That Thank God you know. that doesn't happen today that we've gone way <laughs> past that, right? <laughs> so it's like history repeating itself, you know? So, so this is the Frankfurt school. So they, so they said, it's going to, we're going to go not to the, economic Karl Marx of the Communist Manifesto of 1848, we're going to go to the original Karl Marx of 1843, five years earlier, when he was a cultural warrior. And he said, we have to smash religion. We have to smash patriotism. We have to smash family. We have to smash all these things. Well, that didn't catch on in 1843. And then you had the revolutions in Europe of 1848, his Communist Manifesto became popular. So that's what we think of as Marxism. But the original Marx is what we're seeing today with critical theory, critical race theory. That's straight out of Marx. And it was developed by this Soviet-created Frankfurt School in Germany that then we rescued. And we, not meaning the U.S. government, but that Americans rescued with uh, negotiations with a Soviet agent to house them at Columbia University take over the teacher's college. So teach the teachers to spread around the country. What, you know, all the stuff we're seeing today, you can trace the origins back to this period of time. The long march through the institutions. Exactly. So the, the big takeover. Um, you know, it just occurred to me, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little here, but I remember watching this TV series when I was a kid, and I trust it was in reruns because I think it was in the 50s, but it's called I Led Three Lives. Yeah, and it was a Philbrick. Yeah. And uh, the the guy, uh, the protagonist, was an in, he was an American citizen who was infiltrating uh, communist cells. And I don't think he was an agent himself of our government, but he was being used by us. And so he was living. I led three. He 
he was infiltrating communist cells, but they were cells that were like espionage cells. They were trying to gain secrets or do sabotage or whatever. But according to your book, that wasn't the real thrust of the Soviet spy um, apparatus. It was really more to influence the influencers in our country and in Western culture to demolish American culture from within. Like, like you said, to, to get into the institutions and teach the teachers and, dis- and right. destroy us that way. Yeah. Yeah. So we think of foreign intelligence operations as stealing secrets. Well, that's espionage. That's spying. And that's just a part of intelligence operations. The, the other real big important part, and sometimes the most important part, is, as you just said, to influence people, to influence policy, to influence sentiment, perceptions, emotions decisions and if you can influence decisions you don't really need to steal the secrets if your person is there at the side of the president look look at how look at how the whole world was reshaped at the yalta treaty in 1945 to see how the world would be after world war ii so hitler hadn't yet been defeated yet and so roosevelt and churchill sat down with stalin pretty much to divide up the world but the people advising roosevelt Many of them were Soviet agents, and they drew up the plans to make sure that the Soviet Union could control chunks of Europe, other parts of the world, and that we would leave that to the Soviet Union rather than let the Soviet Union, say, collapse under its own weight. That's because that that activity really wasn't on our radar at the time. Is that correct? We we weren't really looking at the at the Soviets as the threat that we saw them to be later. They were our war allies, for one. And, yeah, go ahead. Well, you can have an ally without, you know, allies of convenience. You have it all the time. Uh, But there was a a sort of a... Much of the American public simply wanted to defeat Hitler and just be done with it. Others understood, we're going to... Well, let's finish off Hitler and his allies now. But Stalin is going to cause us trouble. And the person warning most about this was J. Edgar Hoover. He saw it from the very beginning. He warned about it at the very beginning. And in fact, FDR instructed Hoover to go after communist and Nazi networks in the United States. So er, FDR was a complicated president because on the one hand, he was very sympathetic to the Soviet Union. On the other hand, he equated the Soviet Union with Hitler at times. And, and Harry Truman certainly did as a senator. He, he saw them as the same danger. Um, but other people like, uh, like General Bill Donovan, who headed the Office of Strategic Services, was very just mission-focused. Let's just finish off the Nazis and the Imperial Japanese and their allies and then be done with it. But what Stalin was doing by 1943 when we seriously entered the war was, you know, everyone could see that the handwriting was on the wall for Hitler. It was just a question of time. So Stalin's goal was, how can I shape the world to make it safe to spread communism? To make the whole world under Soviet rule. And so he knew what he was doing, and that's what he was doing with his agent networks. So he, they, they infiltrated the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which was our wartime intelligence service. And there were a large amount, uh, maybe over 100 controlled Soviet agents and communist agents who penetrated the Office of Strategic Influence to advise President Roosevelt on how to 
run the war. And in fact, the British, who helped us set up our intelligence service because we didn't have one, the main British officer at the British embassy in Washington who was helping Donovan set up the OSS himself was a double agent for Stalin. What was that? Wasn't Kim Philby? That was later, right? That that was that was that was it was about the same time, but it was a different network. His name was Dickie Ellis. Oh, okay, yeah, gotcha. I I enjoy reading books about the intelligence services. I've known a few people in the intelligence services personally and had brushes with them earlier in my career. And uh, I've like read The Secret Team or uh, The Old Boys. That's kind of an obscure book, but it it tells about you know the transition of the OSS into the CIA eventually with, it's pretty brutal too, talking about who's who and who was what. And uh, there's a very, (laughs) I'm also a movie guy too. So if anybody's interested in the OSS and their operations, there's a really good movie with Jimmy Cagney called uh, 13 Rue Madeleine. And it showed about how they would train and actually pretty much showed them training in that uh, uh, country club that they they were actually training in and uh, the stuff that's going on and, and what they're trying to do, the focus, and a very heroic scene at the end with Jimmy Cagney. Uh, I highly recommend it. But I believe that movie was actually, that was given access to a lot of uh, what it was by, the, by that crew in order to try and extend the OSS because it was being shut down after World War II. And there was some jockeying to how can we keep this going before the CIA was was created but right. uh right because the fbi hoover wanted the fbi to be our foreign intelligence service as well as our domestic service and so he wanted he didn't think anybody else could be capable so he it was a big power grab on his part but but in his defense and i didn't write big intel thinking that i was going to be defending j edgar hoover as much as i ended up doing because i uh, this part of history is gone so if you go back to the original sources and read hoover's speeches and his testimony to Congress, he was warning about this since 1920. So, wow. so, so when he's when he, so he insisted that the FBI during World War II take control of foreign intelligence in the American hemisphere. So Roosevelt let him do that. So the the OSS didn't have um, control of intelligence operations in the Western Hemisphere, which ended up being a good thing because the OSS man in charge of Latin America was a Soviet agent. Well, that's, yeah, yeah. I think there's there's a lot of God's providence in our history and a lot of his manipulation, too, to get the results that he wants. Uh, we've got about a minute left before the break, and we've been speaking to uh, Michael Waller, the author of Big Intel. And so uh, when we come back, we're going to kind of bring this up to the future, how this uh, got us where we are. So join us after the break. to be courageous we were made to lead the way we could be the generation that finally breaks the chains we were made to be courageous we were made to be courageous we were warriors on the front lines standing 
Well, folks, welcome back to Your American Heritage, the second half. My guest today is Michael Waller. He's the author of Big Intel and examines how the two large intelligence agencies in the United States, um, the CIA and the FBI, how they went from being basically the good guys to the bad guys. And I think it's easily demonstrable that they... They've gone from being the good guys to the bad guys. When it, we have January 6th, uh, we have grandmothers who have, were at January 6th in the Capitol. We have people who were just visiting the Capitol nearby, might have been buying something, that uh, ammunition nearby to take home with them or something. And all of a sudden, the FBI is sending a full SWAT team without search warrants to their house. It's documented. We've had guests on this show who said, yeah. Uh, the FBI would not show me the search warrant. They said they could go back to the truck and get it. But meanwhile, they've, they'll have kicked in the uh, doors to everything they want to search in the meantime. So did I just want to open it or let them, you know, kick everything in? So, yeah, uh, demonstrably not the good guys. And not to say there aren't good guys in there anymore, but you hear that all the time. And I just wonder who the bad guys have been hiring that we consider that they're still good guys who are field agents, given so many have left. Well, I, Went a little bit further down that road than I really wanted to. But uh, one of the things that uh, Mike and I were talking about during the break was that uh, today's FBI in particular is not the FBI of our youth. It's not, you know, there's the movie, once again, we're into movies and TV. There's uh, the FBI story with Jimmy Stewart. Really heroic story about a, a, a decent agent and what he did for this country as as a member of the FBI. And we all remember, well, I don't know, some of us remember uh, the FBI with uh, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. And, um, you know, the good guys. And uh, somehow or other, we went from there to uh, Comey as director of the FBI. And then, of course, we've got this alternate history of J. Edgar Hoover and who he was, and that he was a cross-dresser, flaming homosexual, blackmailer, uh, uh, you know, this total distortion of him. And Mike, why don't you tell us something about, uh, give us a background on J. Edgar Hoover before we move into the present. Sure. Well, Hoover was a, was a, uh, a, both a simple guy and a complicated guy. I looked into the, the allegations that he was a homosexual and a cross-dresser just because today's FBI is promoting that kind of stuff as a matter of policy. So Chris Ray, the FBI director, had a course, and I, I got the whole course curriculum, all 56-page slide presentation, to indoctrinate all FBI personnel, not only to understand all the rainbow stuff and pronouns and all of that, but to, to embrace it and to be part of it regardless of your moral qualms or, or anything else, you had to be if you wanted to be a good FBI agent or analyst or employee. And uh, so it, so it's one thing to, to have to understand it and have to understand how culture's changing and because and you're working with people, you're working with juries and all of that. So that's important. But to, to ideologically indoctrinate our FBI agents to embrace queer theory as part of their their lifestyles whether you know and to be if they don't want to uh it's not enough to simply mind your own business and not say anything or even it's it's not enough even just to be kind to other people including colleagues you have to be what they call an ally you have to be an agent of change as they call it meaning so now the fbi has gone from law enforcement and counterintelligence to transforming our culture 
all the people like perhaps yourself and myself who live and let live. Go ahead. I mean, I've served in various places with homosexuals. They didn't bother me. As long as they didn't bother me, I didn't bother them. You know, yeah. I don't agree with yeah. their lifestyle. That's fine. But all of a sudden, when it's being shoved down my throat that I have to violate my personal moral uh, uh, beliefs and my religious beliefs or else leave, I have the good guys, the brave guys, the ethical guys that we want will say, no, I can't do that. And they'll walk out. What are you yeah. left with? Yeah. yeah well, and, and you, yes. And you're also left with good people who still stay in because it's well, look, I studied all my life to become an FBI agent. I've been an FBI agent for years. This is my vocation. I'm dedicated to helping people. I've got a family now. I can't blow the whistle and lose my pension or lose my, my you know, security clearance or something. So they just kind of go along to get along and, and completely innocently and inadvertently, they end up becoming enablers of the problem. But back to Hoover. So, yeah. so you would think that, that, that the FBI is pushing this LGBTQ plus, whatever the plus is, pushing it so hard uh, and, and diversity, equity and inclusion so hard, which comes out of the Frankfurt School. So it, it's not just, you know, bringing in people from different cultural backgrounds, which the FBI needs just to, to function in, you know, inner cities mm -hmm. and immigrant communities. You need that. But you don't need DEI because we all know DEI is not about ability. It's about something different. And that's a form of cultural Marxism. But getting back to Hoover, so they're pushing this doctrine. You would think if it was true that J. Edgar Hoover was a flaming gay cross-dresser, that they would say, hey, we're the first federal agency to have a, you know, gay trans. They're not doing that. But they're, they're happy. Even I talked to a lot of FBI agents recently, and they honestly believe just because of the movie that this was Hoover. So I looked into this, and, and there are two um, liberal authors who are critics of the FBI. One won a Pulitzer Prize. He wrote a, wrote a fantastic book on the FBI, and he said there's no truth to it. And then there's a brand new book out also that was published. It's an 800-page biography of Hoover. It's magnificent. That author looked into it, and she said, "There, we, we can't find any evidence of this. We find allegations. Because why? Because, uh, well, Bill Donovan, who was head of the OSS, hated Hoover and was spreading rumors that he was a homosexual back in the 40s when, when you, you, know, you never talked about those kinds of things. So what happened was, though, that Hoover um, took care of his ailing father, who was mentally, he had a mental illness, and couldn't function anymore and couldn't be the breadwinner. So Hoover stayed home to take care of both of his parents while he was in the Justice Department. His dad died, and then he stayed with his mother until she died. So he was 43 years old, living at home to take care of his mother while he was directing the FBI. In the course of that, he'd had a girlfriend and so forth. He was very in love with her. But he came to a point in his life thinking, I can either be a great FBI director to offend America, or I can be a devoted husband to, to, to a woman who'd be my wife, but I can't do both. Hey, that's, that was the apostle Paul's struggle too. He says, I can't, I can't be married and do this apostle thing. So yes, that's, that's a credible decision to make. So, so he stayed with his mother while directing the FBI just to take care of her until she died when he was, you know, 43 years old. And so, so, so then you get all the rumors, right? Why is this guy not interested in women or whatever? Why is he still living with his mom? And of course, Donovan was saying, look at this guy. Donovan was glamorous, really handsome, 
rakish kind of guy who'd been, you know, fought Pancho Villa in Mexico and went off in France and got and a rival. in World War One. Yeah. And he says, look at this guy's living with his mom. And so when his mother died, then he ended up sharing a, a house with his closest aide who they'd been with together. And that guy was also a bachelor. So then you had the same rumors going as well. And this is where the cross-dressing and the closet stuff came about. But those two authors who really dug into it, they spent years of study and they, they could find no evidence of it. They, they found rumors about it, even back to those times. Even uh, uh, Donovan asked President Roosevelt, we can't have J. Edgar Hoover here. He's a homosexual. And Roosevelt said, I don't care what he is. As long as he's a good job fighting Nazis and communists, he's fine with me. Eisenhower had a rule because so many, uh, the Soviets were targeting closet homosexuals because you couldn't come out of the closet back then. It was socially un, you know, impossible. So if the Soviets found that you were leading a secret lifestyle, whether it was a, having affairs on the side as a straight person or as a gay person, they would blackmail you with that. And that's how they recruited, like, the Philby Network in Britain. Uh, several of those members of that network were, were closet homosexuals, and they were brought in. They fought against society because society wouldn't accept them for who they were. That attracted them to communism. And then others would be blackmailed to, to you know, keep their secret secret. And so, so Hoover could never have been that way, or else he would have been blackmailed, too. So Eisenhower said... Uh, when he became president, we're not going to have homosexuals as federal employees because they're too uh, subject to being blackmailed by the Soviets. Yeah, that killed that rumor about uh, you know killed that rumor about Hoover. Yeah, and we're talking about uh, deep, deep spies, deep brewing people like Philby, and you actually knew Robert Hansen. Yeah, that's that's some story you tell in the book. I'm not going to tell it here. But uh, there's so much in your book we're not talking about today. Folks, if you're getting a taste of what's in the book right now, you're not getting the whole book. There's so much going on in here. It's it's so worth reading if you're interested in this stuff. I, I found it fascinating the way you got started in your career was you were told to go to church. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I was a college kid. And uh, so it's explained in detail. But I was just a kid. I was a nobody. I was just interested in fighting the communists. This was President Reagan's first term. And, and I had been part of an anti-nuclear movement in high school because I was, you know, I cared about in high school and, and environment when I was 15. And uh, I was, again, I demonstrating against a Seabrook nuclear power plant in New Hampshire that was going to be, you know, that was under construction then. And I was just concerned about a six-foot pipe full of boiling water uh, cooling off the reactor and then dumping it out to sea and what's going to happen to the fish beds where I'd always fish with my dad and my grandpa. We'd go deep sea fishing. So that was my, my concern. But then when I went in, I got involved and I said, okay, who's the, who are the really outgoing kids who, who look like they might, you know, become really great activists. And they took us and they, they had three guys from California came in. So this was in, in New Hampshire and they were professional radical, you know, Viet Cong supporters from several years earlier. And they brought us in and, and, and I was put through a struggle session. A oh Maoist struggle session yeah. of self-criticism and all that. I didn't, I'm just a kid. I don't know what's happening. And then they said, well, why are you, why do you want to be involved in the anti-nuclear movement? And I said, well, because I care about nature. And they just ridiculed me. And they said, look, this isn't about that. This is about overthrowing American capitalism. And I thought, ding, 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 ding. Yeah. So I looked into it and then I just did my, I just, 
made it my own vocation in life to to relentlessly hunt these people down for the rest of my life. And so you got involved with some stuff, and then one of Casey's people, a guy you don't even know his real name, says, go to church. And he told you where to go to church, and Bill yeah. Casey comes and meets you, and basically he set up his own private network outside of the CIA that he's right. funding out of his own pocket because he doesn't trust his own organization anymore and sends yeah. you down to Nicaragua to deal with the Sandinistas. I mean, that's yeah. a fascinating story in itself. We don't have time to get into right now. Folks, you got to read the book, Big Intel. But now bringing it to the future, well, like we were saying, even William Casey, head of the CIA, former OSS guy, real cowboy, now in charge of the CIA, and he doesn't trust the agency underneath them. And so he set up this parallel private in investigatory uh, network, intelligence network, of which you became a part of. And then after that, just stuff started going bad in the organizations were, uh, you know, um, Hoover died like most people do or will. And so that wasn't going to carry on forever. He was replaced. And then eventually people who were raised, I mean, was it Brennan who's a Muslim? Well, we don't know that. There's a lot of rumors about that. But we do know that that he voted for a Soviet agent. Yes, to become he voted for Gus Hall. And then three years later, the CIA recruited him. I mean, what? How could that possibly be? If somebody would just just from poor judgment, let alone being a Communist Party voter, yeah, goes into the CIA. Yeah, so and then we end up running with... it. What? So this is where the CIA went woke, and then the FBI went woke at about the same time. Where you go for not just a liberal organization like CIA has been mostly liberal. It's like the State Department, but. They try to be professional, and even though they do have biases and you want a variety of views, they, they're still intelligence professionals. But imagine making it a Frankfurt School ideology that's imposed, a Soviet original ideology that was developed over the decades that's imposed on top from above by Brennan and by James Clapper, who was head of the whole 17 agency intelligence community after an executive uh, order from Obama to impose woke, critical theory, cultural Marxist ideology across government, but including and especially the CIA and the FBI. This is where things got really dangerous and where you had ideologically motivated fanatics at the top bringing in and recruiting younger sort of, you know, woke Gen X or Gen Z or whatever kids from, from fresh out of college to come in and become intelligence analysts and officers, and they don't believe in the American founding. They think our system was, is a racist system, and, and anybody who's not crazy anti-racist is a racist, and all white people are racist. And any you know, Western tradition is racist because it was white people, and, and all of this stuff, and it all has to be destroyed. This is exactly what Karl Marx was saying in 1843, and the Stalinists who set up the Frankfurt School were saying in the mid-20th century. So now you've seen it come full circle through the universities and law schools into the FBI and CIA. While we're watching a movie like uh, Telephone with Charles Bronson about you know a sleeper cell where this guy's going to get a call from his handler and he's going to go blow something up or be an assassin or something, we're worried about these people. In real life, we have infiltration of the highest levels of our intelligence agencies by 
They're not even sleepers. They're blatant Marxists. Yeah. And the one thing that occurred to me this morning as I was thinking about this was there are there are movies like science fiction movies. I'm thinking of like The Expanse. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. But there are movies where, oh, we run into the remains of an alien civilization that died long ago, but we accidentally wake up some device or something or some system that's now out to kill us. You know, like, and the people that set it up are long dead. They don't care. And I was thinking that in terms of what we see today, whereas, as you describe in your book, the Soviets set up this system of infiltration, these schools, these different uh, 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 lanes of getting their ideology into our our critical thinkers, our in universities, and heck, even in our boardrooms, much less the heads of our intelligence agency. They get this whole mechanism set up not to grab devices like the, 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 the hydrogen bomb or you know, what's our plans for manufacturing electricity or no, they want to destroy our culture and bring it down so that when it falls, they can rise up and take over. And yet the very people that fabricated this system to destroy us died in 1991. Like yeah. they're not even around there. Putin is not the Soviet Union. Putin's his own deal. That's true. But He's not out to take over the United States with with Marxism. And and yet we're suffering from that device, that wind-up device that they let go that's doing all this damage in our system right now. And we've got to have a way of isolating ourselves, basically destroying these this cancer that's infiltrated our culture and our system. Yeah. Yeah. And is but well, what you just said is exactly I, when I was writing the book, actually, I thought of sort of the undead yeah. communists. Yeah. They just won't go away and they're after yeah. the brains. But, but like I zombies. Be, yeah. Yeah. So and it is it's just kind of a zombie operation. But that was the way it was designed because the communists, the early ones were brilliant. Yet You really have to respect them for their genius and for their skill and, and for their their audacity. They set out in that 1922 meeting. They said this operation is going to last. A, couple, a few generations, it's going to last beyond our lifetimes, and we'll never live long enough to see the effects. And they were just aiming at Germany. They weren't even aiming directly at us yet. So they were just looking at their own neighbors in Europe. So so really, that timeline was correct in terms of it coming over and affecting us, and then the Soviet agents came over. Uh, and these were, like, literally, the Rockefeller Foundation was funding some of these people to come over. So the Soviets weren't even paying for this themselves they were getting us to pay for it <laughs> brilliant you know yeah, they, and you've so gotta, you've got to admire the trade craft at least they're like why can't we do it because it's not hard to do so 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 they have so it shouldn't be a surprise that these operations would outlast their creators or even outlast the regime the soviet regime that created it because in 1991 uh, the, when the soviet union collapsed the kgb did not collapse but they opened it's, up all their archives to us. No, no, they did no? not. No, 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 they did not. They leaked some of the archives, and they and and different Russian government archives got some of the archives. We never got the operational archives. We never got the, the daily archives. We just got notes that were taken and some documents that either came from a Politburo safe or a Communist Party official's vault 
or, or a file from somewhere else, but there was never an opening of the KGB archives or the agent networks. I was over there then at the time. I was at KGB headquarters at Lubyanka, one of the few who had access at the time. I was doing my doctoral dissertation on the KGB and what was happening. This is late 1991, early 1992, well, you as know. everything was collapsing. And my friends in there, my Russian friends, were ransacking some of the offices. And I came back with shopping bags full of documents. And and so so this was and this was how we got that stuff out. It was we were stealing it and we were pillaging it and then we were buying it. Like you could you could buy stuff for for a bag of, of Wrigley spearmint gum or juicy fruit gum. <laughs> Oh, it was man. amazing what you could get. And then it's amazing where $10 would get you because these, these KGB officers were making just a couple dollars a day salary. You throw a $20 bill at them and, and it's, it, was, it was amazing at the time. And then a lot of the other senior KGB guys, it was an uncertain time and a very optimistic time. They wanted to land on their feet in the post-communist world and, and maybe get into business and work with American business, make a lot of money. So they would talk. It's a question of what what was true and what was not true. But spending enough time with these guys, some of them were just glad to get it off their chests. Some wanted credit for things that they would never get credit for before. And you got a lot of really inside interesting stuff. And as soon as one certain very prominent billionaire dies, I'm going to tell the story about him and what two KGB generals told me about him. But I don't want to get sued, so I'm going to wait a while. <laughs> you, yeah, and then of course... Name. Of course, we've got Yuri Brezmanov who came over and told us everything he did with the, yep. the, the videos. Folks, Google Yuri, U-R-I, Brezmanov. If you get it close, Google will send you there. If you're not familiar with him coming over in the 80s and telling us exactly what they were up to. But then, yeah. like you said, at the well, end I, of the I book. Transcribed, I transcribed those videos in, and, uh, and put them in Big Intel. So I saw that, yes. about this in 83 and 84. And then, then you do. He, and then he was saying it takes a couple generations there for these things to take root also. And boom, a generation or two later, you, you know, fast forward 40 years and everything he said has come true. And he wasn't even a KGB man. He was just a, a low level propagandist who was trained in this stuff. So the Soviets were training all of their people to do this kind of work. And he just went and related what he knew and he, he nailed it. I've just been asked a question with 30 seconds left before the music starts. And I'm willing to talk over the music. Um, What's the what's the connection between the current Marxists that we have and the and the progressives, the progressive movement? Got to be brief. It's an, it's an overlap where you can't draw a border. It's like a giant Venn diagram. Because some people embrace every single part of Marxism, but they're not Marxists. They, they, they don't believe in Marxism. Or they think it's ridiculous. But in practice, they're Marxists. Okay. Um, Derek, would you turn that out a second? Thank you. Appreciate that. So we've got like... 55 seconds left and uh our guest has been michael waller the author of big intel uh do you have a website mike securefreedom.org okay folks check it out thanks for joining us come on back next week your american heritage america bless god <laughs>